So I don't know if this is something you've ever thought about, but my mind is a little weird, so I think about weird stuff sometimes. And uh, I sometimes think about how people kind of walk through life with these inaccurate views of themselves that's just completely different from reality. Like people kind of have this view of themselves in their head that is just so far from the truth. And I'm a guy, so I, can, I think about how guys do it all the time. And guys just think that they're the coolest, most best looking, just the greatest thing since sliced bread. Man, guys just think that every girl they ever meet is just madly in love with them. Like they could be in a relationship. They'll turn to their guy friends and be like, hey, do you see that? She was flirting with me. It's like, bro, she doesn't even remember your name. She's not in love with you. Guys think that they could beat any other guy up in a fight. Like, guys will be talking about the UFC. They're like, I could take Conor McGregor, man. Like, all I got to do, he's got no cardio. I can make my money real quick. It's like, dude, you used to get beaten up by your little sister. You're not beating anybody up. Guys often think that they can just fix anything, right? They'll, they'll pop the hood to your car and be like, yep, needed a new uh, engine block and steering rods off. I could do it if I had the tools. It's like, no, take your car to a mechanic because don't let this fool touch your car. And so I asked some girls in my community group this last week, uh, is there any equivalent for girls? Like, do girls do this at all? And they were like, yes, girls do this. And girls will fixate on any imperfection that they can possibly perceive about themselves. I mean, it could be the most little, minute detail. And they're going to go throughout the day thinking that everyone they see, everyone they come into contact with has noticed it, has judged them for it, is now going to tell all their friends and family about that one imperfection. And it's just this crazy identity shift that happens because one curl in their hair is off. Another thing that girls do that someone else told me is that girls just think they can DIY like anything. Like they just see something on Pinterest and they're like, yeah, I can make myself a rustic Italian kitchen with nothing but some used pallets and some drywall that I found. And I would just really like to see that play out, honestly. Um, and all this is kind of funny, but I actually do think that people walk through life with these real inaccurate views of themselves. And what I want you to notice is that it never just stops with an inaccurate view of yourself. Like you don't just have an inaccurate view of yourself. You end up with an inaccurate view of the world around you. And so we've been walking through this series called Faithful Together. And Doug has mapped out for us how God is faithful to us in the severity of our struggles, in the longevity of our struggles, and in the severity of our hurts and what's been done to us. And so what I want to do tonight together is maybe tackle this from a different angle, take a different approach to it, because I really think the hurdle in our way, the block in our way to understanding God's faithfulness is an understanding of ourselves. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And so I just think that we don't have this proper understanding of ourselves. And so I'm talking pre and post salvation, right? Like maybe before you got saved, you just thought to yourself, I am 90% there. Like I'm right there on the cusp. I just need Jesus to take me that extra 10. Like I'm a good guy. I can do it on my own. I just need Jesus to bring me that extra, that extra uh, step. Or maybe you thought, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like that guy. I'm not like Joe Schmo over there. I mean, like he's got his stuff he's got to work out. I'm just, I'm a decently good person, man. These are just inaccurate views of the self. 
Or what about post-salvation? Maybe after you got saved, you kind of fell into this thing, this rhythm called easy believism, which is this idea that being a Christian is nothing more than saying a one-time prayer, showing up to church when it's kind of convenient for you, and never really showing any life change, never really showing any real devotion to Jesus. And so you just walk through life showing the same tendencies, doing the same exact things you did before you were a Christian. You just call yourself a Christian, and there's been nothing different about you. And these are just inaccurate views of the self. And an inaccurate view of our position before God, an inaccurate view of ourselves will always, always, always lead to an inaccurate view of God's faithfulness. I really believe we cannot understand God's faithfulness until we understand who we are before God. And so tonight we are going to be in the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea is uh, one of the 12 minor prophets. And he's a minor prophet not because he's under 18. That's not what that means. He's a minor prophet because he wrote a relatively short book compared to the relatively long books of the major prophets. And so uh, if you remember back to our series on Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote to the northern kingdom of Israel and, and or, or wrote to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And Doug talked about how some wrote to the northern kingdom of Israel, some wrote to the southern kingdom of Judah, or Jeremiah kind of wrote to both. And so Hosea is going to be writing to the northern kingdom of Israel at a time when every Everything is going great from a worldly perspective. Like from an outside perspective in Israel, at the time of Hosea's writing, everything is great. They have a strong king. They have a mighty military. The economy is thriving. The people are happy. Yet on the inside, at the heart level, people are dead. People are far from God. And so through Hosea, God is going to call out these ways of sinful living that they've fallen into. And there's four ways that they've done this. The first is that they have denied God in favor of themselves. They've literally denied the covenant requirement of faithfulness. They said to themselves, man, I know who God is. I know what he requires, but I'm going to go my own way. They willingly and knowingly rejected God. The second thing that they did is that they engaged in idolatry, mainly um, sexual idolatry and cult prostitution. And so whatever ethic, whatever sexual ethic existed in Israel is just kind of thrown out the window, thrown to the wayside, and people did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. The third thing that they did is they trusted in their human institutions and in their human forms of government over the kingship of God. And so they, again, denied God and trusted in themselves. And finally, they were guilty of violence and of oppressing, uh, oppression of uh, defenseless people. They were guilty of murder and theft. And the reason I bring this all up, like normally I might not outline all this for you, but I really think that we could just take that list and throw United States 2020 right up top of it and not change a thing. Like we are guilty of denying the existence of God, denying God and going our own way. We have embraced a wild sexual ethic. We have uh, trusted in our own human systems of government, our own political parties over God. And we have been guilty of violence and oppression. So what I'm hoping for us tonight is that the words that Hosea is going Going to pen will actually mean something for us in this post-apocalyptic world that we're living in because that's certainly what it feels like and so Hosea writes this book in a really unique way 
It's often referred to as one of the most autobiographical books of the prophets. And what that means is that Hosea's story is kind of used throughout the book. Hosea leverages his own story for his message. You could say that some prophets preached with their words, but Hosea is going to preach with his life. And so Hosea has these long speeches in it, but what always catches the eye of the reader are these bits of Hosea's story that are sprinkled throughout the book. And that's where we're going to be tonight. And so let's pick up in Hosea chapter one. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. And so right off the bat, this is a little weird. Like most prophet books you would expect to start out with like, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. And this one's like, hey man, go marry a prostitute. And just so you know, while the scripture never calls her the word prostitute, it always and kind of alludes to her using sex for money, being involved in some sort of sexual slave trade. And so most commentators believe that Hosea's wife was a prostitute. And so God says, hey, go and marry a prostitute. And that's pretty weird. And then he says, and you're going to have children and they're going to be promiscuous. And like, that's kind of even weirder. And you're like, what does that even mean? And so what it really means is kind of this twofold thing going on. See, Hosea's children will kind of always be called in to question. See, the fatherhood of these kids will always be called into question because Hosea's wife has this reputation of unfaithfulness. And so I imagine that Hosea will lie awake at night wondering if these are even his children. And as a result of that, I think the shame and the weight of their mother's sin will actually just weigh on their shoulders. It will be a burden to them and they will literally be children. They will literally be uh, products of their mother's sin, of promiscuity. And so this is, this is heavy. This, is, this isn't like bright, sunshiny Bible right now. This is heavy. And what God is doing is he setting Hosea up to experience what he experiences on a regular basis. Like uh, God is saying to Hosea, you are going to marry a sinful woman and you're going to father these children of promiscuity and you're going to realize, you're going to start to understand what it's like to be me day in and day out. And so that's not even really a spoiler to you because it just kind of gets worse and you're going to see that as we move on in verse three. So he went and he married Gomer, a daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehuand and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the Jezreel Valley. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to his son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in that place where they were told you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so, man, Hosea has just got 
some really messed up names in his family. Like, I'll be the one to say it. He marries a woman named Gomer. Like, this is not a really pretty girl's name. Like, if you're looking for biblical girls' names for your kids, skip over Hosea because Gomer, you don't just go to your friends house. They're like, this is Gomer Elizabeth, our new baby girl. Like, that just doesn't happen. And then his kids, man, like, this is just rough. He's got a kid named Jezreel, which means that God is going to destroy a wicked dynasty. His second kid name literally means I will no longer have compassion. Like, oh, is that French? That's pretty. And then his third kid's name literally means you are not my people. And these are some rough names. Like, I don't think these are the popular kids in school. I don't think Gomer's sitting on the PTA. But all joking aside, like, do you see that Hosea is just set up for heartbreak here. Like there's, there's no way that this plays out that is not just heartbreaking for Hosea. And what's happening is Hosea's family is just a picture of unfaithful Israel, right? Like uh, Israel was guilty of sexual sin and that's just pictured in Gomer. Israel was guilty of trusting in human government and that's pictured in Jezreel. And then God is going to judge them by no longer having compassion on them and no longer calling them his people. And that's pictured in children two and three. And then uh, Hosea is just gonna walk through the heartbreak of having to endure that. Like no, no little boy grows up about this being his future family. Like that just doesn't happen. And what God is trying to show the reader, what God is trying to show us is that when he chose Israel, God put himself on a collision course for heartbreak. Like there was no way that God's plan didn't end with his heartbreak because he chose an unfaithful people. And man, I hope that this story will just kind of grow and gain more power for us as we continue to walk through it. Because in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's bride. And in the New Testament, Christians are called, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so this imagery of a faithful husband and an unfaithful wife cannot be lost on us today. And as we continue to walk through this, I really hope that you're gonna see how Hosea marrying an unfaithful woman like Gomer is a picture of God choosing an unfaithful people like you and me. And so we're gonna skip down to chapter three where Hosea's story continues. And it says this in verse one. Then the Lord said to me, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. And don't worry, I will get to the raisin cakes. But first, God is calling Hosea to go get his wife. And that's a little confusing because like, what does that mean? And so some things have happened in between where we last saw Hosea's story. See, Gomer at some point left Hosea. At some point, Gomer abandons him and it says that she returns to her life of unfaithfulness. She is called an adulteress, which means that she is just sleeping around. Some things in a few verses later are going to imply that she's back into some sort of prostitution. And so here's Hosea left by his wife and God calls her to go and show faithfulness to her again. And what I love is every time God calls Hosea to go show faithfulness to Gomer, he reminds him that he's done it before for Israel. Like he's like, hey, go Find your wife and get her back because you know I've done it for Israel. And now I want to talk about this raisin cake thing. And I don't want to start division in the church because apparently there are people who don't like raisins. 
and these people are wrong because raisins are good. Raisin nets are good. I lit, my grandmother literally makes a raisin cake that I love. And so this is all I have to say. If you don't like raisins, that is okay because God forgives sin. And what um, God is doing here is he is not outlawing raisins. Like God is not against dried fruit. That's just not what's happening. But raisin cakes were used in Canaanite sexual rituals. Now, I don't know how they were used. I don't really want to know how they were used, but they were used, okay? Uh, commentators and historians have gathered this information. And so when God says that he tur- uh, the Israelites turn their affection toward raisin cakes, it is a symbol of Israel turning their affection toward other gods and toward other uh, ritual practices. And what I want to do is just touch on this for a moment because I really do think that our culture has, like Israel, embraced a wild, uh, non-biblical sexual ethic. And I don't want to really even call that out as much as I want to just talk about the Christian response to that. Like what we do as believers in response to our culture. And what I think ends up happening is one of two different things. Christians either fall into temptation, they fall into this sexual temptation that they're going through, and they end up embracing that sexual ethic. And what happens is there becomes this guilt-shame factor, and they begin to think that they're two-faced, and man, I can't even really call myself a Christian, and they start believing lies about themselves, and it kind of just runs them into the ground. And then this other thing that happens kind of on the other end of the spectrum is Christians walk in purity and they struggle and they, and they seek to live by biblical standards, but they're embarrassed by it and they don't want to be judged by the outside world. And so they hide it. And so I just want to address these two responses. And if you are in that first camp, if man, if you are just Uh, engaging in sexual sin of some kind, if you are sleeping with your significant other before marriage, if you are committing adultery against your spouse, if you are looking at things that you should not be looking at, man, I just want you to hear today that God has grace for you, that he wants you to lay that at his feet. And there are lies that the enemy is trying to tell you that you will never be able to kick it, that you will never be used by God. And what God is saying to you is that he has grace, he has healing and restoration in store for you, and he will use your past as a part of your testimony testimony for other people's walk. And so if that's you tonight, reach out to somebody. Lay that at the feet of Jesus. Seek help in cutting that stuff out. And man, if you are in the other camp, if you are walking in purity, and look, I know no one is doing this perfectly. We can be honest about that. But if you are walking in purity, if you're seeking to live your life by biblical standards, you cannot be embarrassed about that. Man, we have a duty to... um, model our faith for the outside world. See, the world is looking for satisfaction. The world is looking to find their hope in something. And a lot of times the world looks towards sex and what we can do as believers is say, hey, sex is a good thing, but my identity, my satisfaction, my worth is found in Jesus. And when you experience life in him, that is when your life will flourish. That is when you will find the hope and the satisfaction you're looking for. And now I'm not telling you to go plaster this all over billboards. I'm not telling you to go post this all over Instagram. But what I am saying is that you can use wisdom to speak on the individual level with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. 
and model our faith so that the unbelieving world wants in. Because that's what Israel was supposed to do. Like in the covenant, Israel was called to show, uh, to be a blessing to the nations. When they were brought into the promised land, they were literally supposed to model the covenant so that the nations around them would see what they had and want in. But instead, Israel saw what everyone else had and they wanted some of that. And so they failed. We, we cannot fail. We have to model our faith so that people will see what we have and want it. And so that's all I'm going to say on the topic. We can keep moving forward. That's the raisin cake stuff for you. So you could take it. Don't leave it. You should take it. Um, and we're going to keep moving with verse 2 of chapter 3. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, nine bushels of barley. And I said to her, you will live with me for many days and you must not be promiscuous or belong to any man and I will act the same way toward you. And so Hosea rescues his wife out of prostitution and I hope you caught this, but he buys her. And like you shouldn't have to buy your own wife. Like that doesn't even make any sense. And this isn't some women or property thing like, oh, you shouldn't have to buy what's already your property. Like, no, no, no. Like you don't have to buy your wife. When you get married, you make a commitment I am yours, you are mine. Typically in my experience, they're not buying each other 10 years down the road. That's the commitment. And so Hosea goes and he buys his own wife. And I just think about what this must have been like for Hosea. Like this is a little conjecture for you. This is not like in the Bible, but this is what my imagination does when I think about this story. I think about Hosea who's heartbroken, who's angry at his wife who left him and is being unfaithful. And he's told by God, go and get her. And he, he probably doesn't really want to, but he does. And so he gets his money together and maybe he puts his cloak on and he heads into that bad neighborhood. Like that part of town, you don't see the prophet of God in that part of town. Like you don't see Christians or, or men of God in that part of town. And so he goes down there. Maybe he's got his hood up and he's trying to hide his face. And maybe he's getting a stink eye from some guy. And maybe some old creepy lady spits at him as he's walking. And he uh, finally finds his wife. And there she is. And maybe she's just beaten. And maybe she, it just looks like she hasn't eaten in days. And she's wearing just filthy rags as clothing. And she's chained up on a trading block. And maybe she's surrounded by men who are just throwing money, bidding so that they can use her body and throw her away afterwards. And maybe in that moment, her head lifts and she meets eyes with her husband. And she thinks, man, what is he doing here? Like, is he just here to mock me? Is he here to see what I've become? And maybe the shame just begins to wash over her. And in that moment, Hosea pulls out his money and he purchases her back. I mean, like, do you see the radical faithfulness, the radical love in that? And Hosea is just a picture. Hosea is just a glimpse at the faithfulness that God is going to show his people. And I don't want to get too ahead of this or too ahead of myself, but God is literally going to blow Hosea's faithfulness out of the water. Like if you think that's faithful, if you think that's crazy love, just wait to see what God is going to do. And so in verse four, we're going to finish up chapter three here. For the Israelites must live many days without a king or a prince, without a sacrifice or a sacred pillar, without an ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And so these last two verses kind of take a turn. 
You're like, how do we go from a guy purchasing his wife back to talking about Israel's princes? How does that make sense? And what Hosea is doing is he's turning away from his story and back onto the story of Israel. And he's alluding to how God is going to take Israel through an exile. He's going to literally lead them out of the land and and discipline them and teach them to show them their sin so that they will return in faithfulness to him. And what I love about the prophets is this cohesiveness. Like if you just flip through the different prophets, man, they're all preaching the same message. And so uh, Jeremiah in chapter 29 talks about this as well. He says, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promise concerning to you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your well-being and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will be found by me. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I banished you, declares the Lord. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. And when Doug finished up Jeremiah, maybe you remember him talking about this, about how as Israel was walking through the hardest season of their history, God is saying, hey, you can have hope in the fact that I am the God of restoration. And so when we walk through difficult times, we can cling to the idea that God is the God of restoration. Hosea models this with his wife. Jeremiah preaches it in his book. And I love what Jeremiah is going to say in a few chapters in chapter 31. Look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And so Jeremiah prophesies about this new covenant that's coming. A covenant that is not written on stones and it's not written in laws, but it's literally written on the the hearts of man on the inner parts of man. And it's a promise by God to be faithful, to forgive sin. And this new covenant that Hosea alludes to at the end of chapter three, this new covenant that Jeremiah talks about in chapter 31 is found in Jesus. See, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And in the old covenant, there were a lot of stipulations and a lot of rules and a lot of requirements that were uh, required of the human side of the covenant. And so people had to sacrifice idols and they had to obey a book of laws. And it was exclusive to Israel and only a few people really even got to interact with God. But in the new covenant, all the requirements, all the stipulations are gonna be put on God. And all that's going to be required of human beings is to believe and have faith. And so Jesus, who is God, came down and walked among us. And he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. And in doing so, he put the requirements of the covenant on himself. And then he died as a ransom for you and me. 
And I just want to touch on this idea of Jesus' death as a ransom. See, I don't know if there are any theology nerds here. It might just be me. I'm not sure. But there are different views of Jesus' death on the cross. And it kind of creates a silly division in the church because people are trying to figure out how do we frame, how do we think about Jesus' work on the cross? Is it this idea of Christus Victor? Is it penal substitution or substitutionary atonement or ransom? And if you don't really know what any of that is, that's okay. If you want to ask me about it later, you can do that. But what I want to say is that all of these things can be true because he's God and he can do a lot of different things at the same time because he's just that powerful. And so what I want to key in on is this idea that Jesus' death is a ransom for you and me. See, in Matthew 20, Jesus is going to call his death a ransom for many. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is going to refer to Jesus' death as a payment for you and me. That that we were enslaved to sin and death. That we were in bondage and Jesus had to pay to get us back. And that should sound a little familiar to you. Because we just talked about Hosea who purchased his wife out of bondage and slavery. See, Hosea is the picture of what was to come. The better Hosea is Jesus who bought his people out of slavery and bondage to death. See, we were his creation. We already belonged to him before the foundation of the world, yet we wandered away. We sold ourselves into slavery, yet he purchases us not with money, but with his blood. And instead of abandoning us, instead of uh, blowing us up and starting over again, he shows faithfulness to us. In his death, he purchased us back, and in his resurrection, he defeated sin and the grave once and for all. That is the faithfulness of our God. That is the radical faithfulness of our God. And so what we've done is we've gained a better understanding of God's faithfulness, but we need to understand one more thing to fully appreciate this. See, we're okay with God being a picture, or uh, Hosea being a picture of God. Like, we're cool with Hosea representing God, but I hope you know that means that you and I are Gomer. And we don't really want to be Gomer. But see, we are. In the book of Romans, Paul is going to say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think we, we think about that verse, oh, that's a nice verse, you know, that's, that's a sweet verse. But we don't really get the implications of that verse. And so this is what I want you to do. And it's not really going to be fun for you. This isn't like, oh, a fun little exercise at church. No, this is going to be a little difficult. But what I want you to do is I want you to think of your absolute worst moment. Like that moment that I know we all have, that moment that just makes you sick, that moment that you don't want to think about, that moment that you're going to take to your grave that no one knows about, that no one else here knows about, that moment that you can't believe you did that, you can't believe you said that, you can't believe you thought that, because that moment when you were at your worst, that's the moment that Christ died for you. That's the moment that Christ looks at you and says, I love you and I'm going to purchase you back from your sin. It's not that you were okay. It's not that you were, oh, I just missed the mark a little bit. No, 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 we were wretched. We were detestable. At our worst, Christ died for us. Now, don't mishear me. That's not your identity. If you are a believer, your identity is forgiven. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is a son and a daughter of the Most High God. But if you want to appreciate your new identity, you have to recall the identity that God called you out of. If you want to appreciate God's faithfulness, you have to remember when you were at your worst. And that's our bottom line tonight, that when you were at your worst, Jesus is still faithful. See, I don't, I don't know what your worst moment is. I don't need to know what your worst moment is. 
No one around you knows what it is. Man, I don't know if it happened last week. I don't know if it happened 10 years ago. I don't know if it hap- it's going to happen in the future. But what I do know is that Jesus is faithful through it all. And so our response to this, I think, is going to look different depending on who you are. Like when we see the faithfulness of God and and our position before God, there's going to be different responses that God is calling us to. But the overarching response that I want us to key in on is the idea of faith-filled obedience. And I don't want to go too deep into this because Doug is going to be talking about this next week. But, But I really think the only proper response to seeing God's faithfulness for what it is, is faith filled obedience. That, that, that's the mark of a Christian. A Christian, a person who has encountered God, responds by being faithful to God. And so maybe he's calling you toward repentance. Maybe he's calling you toward um, cutting out a bad relationship or spending more time with him in the word or forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it or serving your community, or serving your church. I don't know what specifically he's calling you to, but I do know that he is calling all of us to faith-filled obedience. And so that's what I want you guys to walk away responding with tonight. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm so glad that you're here with us today because you just heard about the most insane faithfulness in the world. Like this doesn't exist anywhere else. You can look high and low, but this faithfulness, this love, you're not gonna find it anywhere else. And so maybe your response today is to just take a step toward God. Maybe your response, you don't know if you believe, you don't really know what this whole thing is about, but you just need to ask, hey God, will you reveal yourself to me? If you're real, if you're there, will you reveal yourself to me? Or maybe you're ready to put your faith in Jesus tonight, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But guys, let's remember how God's faithfulness is at its best when we were at our worst, and we can remember that. We can appreciate God's faithfulness in that. And we can respond in faith-filled obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you that when we are at our worst, you are at your best, that you are still faithful to us. God, I pray for everyone here. I pray that as we recall when we were at our worst, all right, we would remember that our identity is in you, Jesus, that that would be on the forefront of our mind, that we are called forgiven, that we are called sons and daughters. But I also pray, Lord, that you would help us see your faithfulness for what it is, that you purchased us back from our slavery to sin and to death. If you want to put your trust in Jesus tonight, you can pray something like this. Jesus, I need a savior. Like Gomer needed Hosea, I need you. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again to defeat sin and death. Would you come into my life? Would you change my heart? I want to walk with you for the rest of my days. If you prayed something like that, I just want to encourage you to reach out to someone you know, a Christian that you trust. Reach out to someone on staff here because we would love to walk through that with you. God, help us to remember your faithfulness that when we are at our worst, you are still faithful. Thank you, Jesus. pray this all in your name. Amen.